This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. Folks, this is episode 142, part one. I told you guys I was going to do that yesterday, and I remembered, folks. So on episode 141, we wrapped up the analysis of the 1995 paper, Industrial Society and Its Future. And what we showed you was that there was an author back in 1995, 28 years ago, who predicted basically exactly where we are today, warning of genetic modification of humans, warning of the engineering of humanity out of existence, warning of the dangers of the industrial technological system, as they call it, what we would call technocracy, warning about over-socialization into the system, what we would call social engineering. And so we were able to look at this paper Okay, that was published in 1995 and show that it pretty much predicted where we are today. It was a warning to humans that technology would destroy humanity. And not just technology, but the overall technological system, what we'd call technocracy. The author did not use the word technocracy, nor did he use the word social engineering, as I had just mentioned, folks. But this author was pretty spot on, and he talked about what a revolution against the technocracy would look like, that it would not necessarily be a bloody, violent revolution, but it would be an ideological revolution, and that technology would have to be put up against what he calls wild nature that the revolutionaries the people warning of what the world would look like when technology completely takes over and destroys the natural world and humanity did not have to offer up a solution of a plan society utopia uh something i'd call a half amish style community that they just had to show the counter ideal to technology being wild nature and try to push people uh 
against technology and back into nature. We not, saw some of that actually happen organically over COVID land, the high school theater production. Folks started to withdraw, look for homesteads, pull out of the Rockefeller Medical Industrial Complex, get back to more natural birth, natural medicine, et cetera, et cetera. We saw a lot of that happen. I think that was a product of the pushback to the system we find ourselves living in. So if you haven't had an opportunity, I've covered this paper probably across 10 or 12 different episodes. I had uh, various interviews in between. Eventually, at some point, maybe I'll string all those episodes together and put them out, out as one, uh, one master episode, uh, something I may uh, work on soon. So what I want to do now, ladies and gentlemen, is talk about the author of this paper. And I myself have not done a lot of research into the author in many, many, many years. I explained to you that I had read Industrial Society and its Future uh, probably about seven times over the last 15 years, the last time being about three years ago. And I've watched some documentaries, and I know the official narrative, and I've done a little bit of digging, but haven't really gone down deep into all of this. All right, so I want to talk about this author, who they are. I want to talk about the official narrative versus some of the other information that is out there that's come out over the years since uh, the author was first known in 1996. I mean, the paper published in 1995. The author came to light in 1996. We'll talk about that momentarily. So I want to do a bit of a deep dive into this author and go through some stuff I've been researching over the last couple of weeks, try to get an understanding for who he was. Now, I told you at the beginning of the series and throughout the series that I'm not 100% convinced, and it doesn't matter, but I'm not 100% convinced that this author is necessarily responsible for the paper. I suggested it could be one of three scenarios. One, it could be the author, all right? And he was a prophet, and he wrote this paper, and he did the things that the official narrative says he did, and he got the paper published, and that's it. That's the whole story. Number two, it could be that the author was some sort of a mind-controlled messenger. And we know the government can do mind control. We know they've been working on that going all the way back to at least the 1950s and 1960s. We know that some of the military doctors like Dr. Charles Morgan III and Dr. James Giordano, people that are involved with the DARPA Brain Initiative, have talked about in speeches that we've reviewed here that we have the ability to mind control people even in their sleep. This is why I warn people to keep the smart devices and Wi-Fi and stuff out of your bedrooms when you're sleeping at night. So we know that's all possible. And in fact, this story, as we begin to unwind it here on the author, you're going to see that at least the official narrative says, and further investigation into the author as the years went on, say that this author had his mind tampered with by the government. Uh, some believe it was an MK ultra sanctioned program. We'll get into that. We'll kind of sort out the fact from the fiction. And then we have a third scenario. That maybe this paper was written by someone else entirely and the author was a patsy or the author is an actor. Maybe the author doesn't really exist. Who even knows? Uh, when this happened back in the day, I remember seeing this as a kid. I was in high school. Uh, this was like the O.J. Simpson 
uh, situation. It was on all three uh, news channels that existed at the time. It was all over the place. And you see this guy and then you hear the manifesto and it's just that's who it was. He's crazy. Ignore the manifesto. And so maybe that was the situation. And in uh, situations two and three, the purpose of something like that would be what we've discussed here with guests like Dan Golvach, revelation of method. All right. So basically, it would be the elites, it would be the technocrats, the transhumanists, the guys in charge, the bankers, publishing their plans so that we, the people, had the opportunity to resist or to revolt against the plans. And when we don't, their karma is intact and their conscience is clear. All right. We know that's something that comes out of the strange, uh, dark spirituality that some of the higher level folks actually practice. So could that be the case? Could it have been the elites publishing this and then attaching it to some kind of a patsy, some kind of a dupe who they said uh, wrote the paper? And because the character of this author is portrayed as a very evil person, a crazy person, then everyone at the time, even though the manifesto was published large and uh, you know far and wide, as I, I explained before, there weren't... Um, many media sources back then people weren't on the internet so when it was published in let's say the new york times or washington post everyone would have heard about it pretty much everyone who followed the news at all Uh, so could that be the case Uh, currently today i see this happening in a little bit different fashion they don't really have to publish things even hidden in movies and media anymore because they just send the spokesmen and the puppets out on national television in the form of a Klaus Schwab, in the form of a Yuval Noah Harari, in the form of uh, a Dr. Fauci. And they basically just tell you what they're going to do. They don't hide it anymore. They use Elon Musk for this. They use Peter Thiel for this. You can watch all the World Economic Forum panel discussions, whether on YouTube or at the World Economic Forum website. You can watch all the Bank for International Settlements panel discussions, the International Monetary Fund, United Nations, you know, even some Council on Foreign Relations stuff. It's all published. So they don't hide their plans anymore. So they're constantly revealing their methods right in front of us. Uh, I mean, what did everyone experience on uh, Twitter land or in social media world? Probably on Fox News. I don't watch it, so I don't know. But over the last, you know, 48 hours, it's James O'Keefe of Project Veritas with another video. And this time it's some scientists of Pfizer talking about Pfizer manipulating or the possibility of them manipulating the COVID virus to create new future variants. And then they can create the vaccines before the variants come out. You know, so a lot of this stuff, it's revealed and it's out in the public and they give you their plans. And if that's the case and that's what they're going to do, hey, they told you, you don't revolt against it. You don't burn down Pfizer's headquarters. You don't drag the CEOs and the politicians out of their houses and, you know, beat them to death with a Louisville slugger. Then, hey, it's on you. We told you what was going to happen. So, folks, let's start talking about who the author is. Let's start really with the official narrative. And then I'm going to go backwards. I'm going to look at a couple of articles that I found that I think are very important. And then we're going to get into some of these creepy government doctors that were in around in and around this author when he was 
uh, a youngster. He was going to Harvard. He went there early at 16 years old, and he had his brain manipulated, or so the official narrative goes. So we're going to get into that, and I found some really interesting uh, information, papers, documents coming out of the professor that was running the program at the time that this guy had his head messed with. Now, remember, in industrial society and its future, the author talks about mind manipulation and essentially talks about MK Ultra without mentioning MK Ultra. So, did he write about it because it happened to him years earlier? Did he write about it because he knows more than he's portraying? Was it them revealing their method? I don't know. I don't think we're ever going to know all of that, folks, but I think this is a very interesting study into the author of this prophetic paper. So, you you folks uh, have been emailing me. Some of you figured it out. Some of you knew who the author was. Some of you have obviously read Industrial Society and its future. You were very familiar with this. Others have said uh, they had no idea, but it was really interesting information. So if you've been uh, paying attention to the news the last 25, 26, 27 years in this country, you would know that the author of this paper was uh, Ted Kaczynski, uh, dubbed the Unabomber, U-N-A-B-O-M-B-E-R, the Unabomber. And his name is Ted Kaczynski. And so what I want to do, folks, is start over here with the most official of official narratives. So we're going to start with the FBI's website because the FBI took down Theodore Kaczynski. And if you folks are trying to look that up, it's K-A-C-Z-Y-N-S-K-I. All right. So, folks, I, I know some people have heard of the Unabomber, heard of Ted Kaczynski, never heard of the manifesto. I've tested this out on people in my real life and they go oh yeah i heard of him oh did you ever read industrial society in its future what's that well they called it the unabomber's manifesto which i never used that term on this show because i didn't want to give away who the author was and most people go oh, it was some crazy thing right well you heard it was it really that crazy it was a thesis paper written against the technological system trying to turn people back to nature right i don't see anything crazy about that uh, most people do that on the weekends when they escape to a hike or escape to go camping or go to the beach, right? They're reconnecting with nature. Uh, the only difference with this author was he was pushing this as a, not even a lifestyle. He wanted to change the whole system back to wild nature. So let's start with the FBI's version of this. And it says right on their website, uh, this is under FBI.gov slash history slash famous dash cases slash unabomber and says how do you catch a twisted genius who aspires to be the perfect anonymous killer who builds untraceable bombs and delivers them to random targets who leaves false clues to throw off authorities who lives like a recluse in the mountains of montana and tells no one of his secret crimes that was the challenge facing the fbi and its investigative partners who spent nearly two decades hunting down this ultimate lone wolf bomber yeah this is on the fbi website right it sounds like you're reading something 
from a true crime episode or something from a, a television show. You know, it's a it's like Dexter. Dexter, the perfect criminal. Serial killer who kills serial killers. Uh, but no, this is on the FBI website, and there's actually a podcast that goes along with this. Folks, I'm going to take a short break. I'm going to come back. We're going to go through the official narrative, and we're going to get into some pretty wild stuff because you need to see what I dug up and found, dots that I connected. I think that others in the research I've done, haven't connected over the years. I mean, all this information is out there, but nobody really goes and puts the pieces together. I'll do that for you when I get back. My name is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to Payne.tv slash gold. All right, folks, let's pick this back up at FBI.gov. It says the man that the world, um, the man that the world would eventually know as Theodore Kaczynski, came to our attention. That's the FBI in 1978 with the explosion of his first primitive homemade bomb at Chicago University. Over the next 17 years, he mailed or hand-delivered a series of increasingly sophisticated bombs that killed three Americans and injured nearly two dozen more. Along the way, he sowed fear and panic, even threatening to blow up airliners in flight. Goes on to say, in 1979, an FBI-led task force that included the ATF, that would be Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and U.S. Postal Inspection Service was formed to investigate the Unabom, that's U-N-A-B-O-M, the Unabom case, codenamed for the University, capital U-N, and Airline Bombing, capital B-O-M, targets involved. So that's where they got University. University and airline bombing, U-N-A-B-O-M. The task force would grow to more than 150 full-time investigators, analysts, and others. In search of clues, the team made every possible forensic examination of recovered bomb components and studied the lives of victims in minute detail. These efforts proved of little use in identifying the bomber who took pains to leave no forensic evidence, building his bombs essentially from scrap materials available almost anywhere. And the victims investigators later learned were chosen randomly from library research. We felt confident that the Unabomber had been raised in Chicago and later lived in the Salt Lake City and San Francisco areas. This turned out to be true. His occupation proved elusive, with theories ranging from aircraft mechanic to scientist. Even the gender was not certain. Although investigators believed the bomber was most likely male, they also investigated several female suspects. 
The big break in the case came in 1995. The Unabomber sent us a 35,000-word essay claiming to explain his motives and views of the ills of modern society. And that would be the paper that we read, Industrial Society and Its Future. After much debate about the wisdom of, quote, giving in to terrorists, end quote, FBI Director Louis Free and Attorney General Janet Reno, do you remember him? Uh, actually, it was, a, it was a woman played by Will Ferrell on Saturday Night Live. It was quite entertaining. It was Janet Reno. Look her up. Looks like she's wearing football shoulder pads most of the time. Uh, and this was under the uh, Clinton administration, folks. So uh, FBI Director Louis Free and Attorney General Janet Reno approved the task force recommendation to publish the essay in hopes that a reader could identify the author. After the manifesto appeared in the Washington Post, thousands of people suggested possible suspects. One stood out. David Kaczynski described his troubled brother, Ted, who had grown up in Chicago and taught at the University of California, Berkeley, where two of the bombs had been placed. Then lived for a time in Salt Lake City before settling permanently into the primitive 10 by 14 foot cabin that the brothers had constructed near Lincoln, Montana. Most importantly, David provided letters and documents written by his brother. Our linguistic analysis determined that the author of the papers and the manifesto were almost certainly the same. When combined with facts gleaned from the bombings and Kaczynski's life, that analysis provided the basis for a search warrant. On April 3rd, 1996, investigators arrested Kaczynski and combed his cabin. Literally could have used a comb. It was only 140 square feet, folks. Uh -huh. There, they found a wealth of bomb components, 40,000 handwritten journal pages that included bomb-making experiments and descriptions of Unabomber crimes and one live bomb ready for mailing. Kaczynski's reign of terror was over. His new home following his guilty plea in January 1998 an isolated cell in a supermax prison in Colorado. And so over here, if you're watching pain.tv slash gold, we have a picture of Kaczynski. Now you probably remember there was a sketch of him for quite some time. It was a man with a hood with a pair of aviator glasses. Not me, folks. It was not me. And uh, then when they caught him, he had this uh, little beard going on uh, and kind of a longer froish white guy hair and there's a picture of his cabin here folks it's just like looks like a little hunting cabin uh some pieces from the metal and then there's a podcast inside the fbi the unabomber case and we'll eventually analyze this we are not going to do that today but i do want to go through this uh, timeline that the fbi provides uh and so you know my thought process here is I'm going to investigate this over a few different episodes as we do this little Kaczynski uh, expose. And I like to, uh, for my own purposes, I like to gather as much information as I can. So this way, when I'm reading more in-depth articles, I'm able to sort of put the pieces together and I start to see where things don't make sense, folks. This is a real-life research project done in real time. Uh, right here, timeline of Unabomber devices. 
And so we have May 25th, 1978, a passerby found a package addressed and stamped in a parking lot at the University of Illinois Chicago Circle campus. The package was returned to the person listed on the return address, Northwestern University Professor Buckley Chris Jr., He did not recognize the package and called campus security. The package exploded upon opening and injured the security officer. Again, we're starting here at the FBI because this is the most official of official narratives, right? So let's lay the foundation with what the official narrative says before we start getting into more in-depth information. It says May 9th, 1979, so about a year later, a graduate student at Northwestern University is injured when he opened a box that looked like a present that had been left in a room used by graduate students. November 15th, 1979, about six months later, American Airlines Flight 444 flying from Chicago to Washington, D.C. fills with smoke after a bomb detonates in the luggage compartment. The plane lands safely since the bomb did not work as intended. Several passengers suffer from smoke inhalation. Um... And you were allowed to smoke cigarettes on the plane back then. Maybe that was it. No. Uh, June 10th, 1980, again, about six, seven months later, United Airlines President Percy Woods is injured when he opened a package holding a bomb encased in a book called Ice Brothers by Sloan Wilson. October 8th, 1981, so we're now going about 18 months into the future, a bomb wrapped in brown paper and tied with string is discovered in the hallway of a building at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. The bomb is safely detonated without causing injury. Uh, May 5th, 1982, so about six months later, a bomb sent to the head of the computer science department at Vanderbilt University injures his secretary after she opened it in his office. Uh, Then we go to July 2nd, 1982, just a few months later, a package bomb left in the break room of Corey Hall at University of California, Berkeley, explodes and injures an engineering professor. All right, then we're going to go to May 15th, 1985. That's about three years later. I think Kaczynski was taking a break. Maybe he went off on a long vacation to Cabo or something. No, that's not true. Goes on to say another bomb in Corey Hall at the University of California, Berkeley, injures an engineering student. And we have June 13th, 1985, that's just uh, a month later, a suspicious package sent to Boeing Fabrication Division in Washington is safely detonated, but most of the forensic evidence was lost. November 15th, 1985, so a few months later, a University of Michigan psychology professor and his assistant are injured when they opened a package containing a three-ring binder that had a bomb. The bomber included a letter asking the professor to review a student's master thesis. December 11th, 1985, that's just a month later, a bomb left in the parking lot of a Sacramento computer store kills the store's owner. Then we move forward to February 1987, so a little over a year later, another bomb left in the parking lot of a Salt Lake City computer store severely injures the son of the store's owner. A store employee sees the man leave the bomb, and that witness account helped a sketch artist create the composite sketch. That's the one with the uh, aviator glasses I told you about. So now we take a five-year hiatus, and then in June 22nd, 1993, a geneticist at the University of California is injured after opening a package that exploded in his kitchen. 
Uh, just a couple of days later, on June 24, 1993, a prominent computer scientist from Yale University lost several fingers to a mailed bomb. And then we've got about a year and a half later, December 19, 1994, an advertising executive is killed by a package bomb sent to his New Jersey home. And then we have April 24, 1995, a mailed bomb kills the president of the California Forestry Association in his Sacramento office. So they have 16 uh, different accounts here. Okay, 16 different accounts. Now, I want to just see, uh, they've got... The Unabomber case 25 years later on this site. So this is uh, something that they published uh, in a podcast and such. We're not going to go through this right now. I'm going to come back to it. Uh, Because what I'm going to go over to is here on an archive I found on WashingtonPost.com. And I think this is really important for us to look at. This uh, is a collection of uh, four articles written on September 19th, 1995, July 1st, 1995, and June 30th, 1995. All right, and so this is, um, the first one is Unabomber Manuscript is Published. And we're going to read this because the Washington Post was instrumental along with New York, um, the New York Times in publishing the transcript. So we want to say, see what they were talking about at the time. So they have Unabomber manuscript is published, statement by publishers, manifesto possesses ethical dilemma for papers, and paper assails industrial technological system. All right, so we're going to take a look at this when we get back from this short commercial break. And then we're going to get into some really in-depth coverage I found a lot of really amazing stuff, folks, looping this back to MKUltra, uh, particular uh, programs that were going on in the CIA funding universities at the time, like Harvard in secret. Uh, I mean, really, really good stuff. We're going to tie together a lot of things that we've talked about here at the Dustin Gold Standard over the last 141 episodes. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. 